You're listening to the Jay's Journal Podcast for Wednesday, August the 9th. I'm your host, Ari Shapiro, and on today's show, we have a special, exciting treat for you, an exclusive interview with one of the most legendary, unforgettable Toronto Blue Jays players of all time, Jesse Barfield, the mercurial outfielder who's etched in so many fans' memories, is going to talk baseball, his career both with the Blue Jays and the New York Yankees, his short stint playing in Japan, and his thoughts on the nature of the game today. And I'll tell you, this is one show that you're going to want to sit through the entire experience. So the Blue Jays decided for one evening to demonstrate to their fans that they can not only hit well in a baseball game, but simultaneously pitch well. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes and thinking, you know, that really isn't that much of a novelty. But if you consider the full scope of the 2017 season, there's no questioning that it's an incredible relief to be able to watch a baseball game in which the team is ready to play on both sides of the field. And that's precisely what happened on Tuesday night. Jay Happ put in the kind of performance that makes you appreciate that he can be an important cog in, on next year's team, let alone this last month and a half of baseball. And Josh Donaldson put in a very, very surreptitious reminder to the fan base that trading him truly would be a colossal mistake. Given his age and contract status, there's been a lot of discussion lately about the prospect of Josh moving, but I think anyone who saw last night's game will agree with me that when you have a player who can single-handedly take over a game, that's not a player you want to part company with. And I think we'll be seeing Josh continue to do what he's been doing in the month of August and September, which during the offseason will create a real challenge for this organization, one that will hopefully result in him staying with, uh, with the Blue Jays for the long term. So Roberto Asuna comes in, gets the job done, shows the fan base that all of these blown saves in the last two weeks were the anomalous reality of what a primetime major league elite closer is, which is human. He's not going to close every game. It's not going to be three up, three down. And I think that when he does go through these stretches, the worst thing that fans can do is to abandon all hope and not support a player who, up until those past few weeks, had demonstrated that he was, if not the best, one of the best closers in baseball. So ye of little faith, Hang in there. Let's see how the season progresses. The Blue Jays are now four and a half games out of the second wildcard spot and, again, still have over 50 baseball games to play. And as long as that statistical fact exists, you will not be able to avoid me telling you that over and over again, whether it's on my show or whether it's going on the radio and television. Be prepared. 162 games is precisely what it is, a very long season that needs to be played out. And if anyone knows the value of time and possibility in baseball, it's Jesse Barfield, someone whose class, elegance, and grace has really shown through in everything that he does, both on the field and post-baseball. And I think it's really important, as you listen to our interview, that you appreciate that baseball has this indelible effect on certain players, which is translated into an individual who doesn't let a single day go by without appreciating the blessings and gifts that he's received from being involved with Major League Baseball. This is truly a player, a man who has appreciated everything that he's received and given to this game. And boy, did he ever give a lot. You're talking about a player who was part of what was renowned as the best outfield in baseball in the 1980s. Between Jesse, Shaker Lloyd Mosby, and of course, the fiery temperamental George Bell, the first ever MVP winner in the history of this franchise, what you ended up with were three individuals who comprised an outfield that simply was unstoppable. And quite frankly, one of the reasons why in the mid-80s, the Toronto Blue Jays were truly a team on the rise and a force to be reckoned with. 
this is a t- this is an organization that was able to produce a 96 and 99 win campaign and get themselves to within one game of the World Series. We're going to talk about that and many other things here on the Jays Journal podcast. My guest tonight is someone whom I've admired for many years and was part of what was universally regarded as the best outfield in Major League Baseball during the 1980s. He's a two-time Gold Glove winner, a silver slugger, and led the American League in home runs in 1986 when he was also made an All-Star. Joining me now is former Blue Jays right fielder, Jesse Barfield. Jesse, thank you for joining me on the Jays Journal podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ari. Looking forward to it. As the son of a baby boomer, I literally grew up watching your Blue Jays career and uh, had the pleasure of watching you play at Exhibition Stadium. They were some very impressive baseball teams built from what I consider to be a foundation of, you know, simply astounding Epi Guerrero scouting and the perfect mix (laughs) of, you know, brilliant coaching and smart front office management. What should Toronto fans know about how those teams compared to baseball's best during the 1980s? Well, first of all, you mentioned Epi Guerrero. Man, that's that's a name from the past. Love that mm-hmm. guy. He was amazing. I do remember, first of all, getting my September call up, and I'd known Epi from Big League Camp down in Dunedin, Florida. And you know, what a what a tremendous tremendous coach. He learned a lot from Pat Gillick. And uh, I remember walking into the ballpark, and uh, <laughs> in Dunedin, I'm sorry, in uh, Chicago. And uh, it was a thrill because that was my first uh, first ballpark, big league ballpark that I stepped into as a kid because I grew up right outside of Chicago in Joliet. And here's Epi walking up. And I, he had something behind his back. I was talking <laughs> to the local media and Chicago media. And up walks Epi with an ice cream cone behind his back. He said, Jesse, welcome to the big league. <laughs> and they had staple bun 29 on the back of my jersey because they didn't have time to sew it on. I didn't care. And so Epi said, there's no difference between the minor league and the major league. The only difference is he pulled the ice cream. He goes, they have the good ice cream in the clubhouse. I know you like this one. <laughs> I said, Epi, man, I can't, I can't eat that right now. That would give me gas. We started laughing. He was a great guy. But I do remember going there, and, and it was a huge thrill for me because I had dreams, honestly, as a kid, of playing one day in that ballpark. And I remember my buddies were sitting up at the upper deck. We used to go there with the boys' club. And I told my buddies, I said, man, one day I'm going to be playing right out there. And they looked at me like I was crazy, except for one guy, Don. He was a kid that I kind of took under my wings. He said, man, don't listen to those guys. You you think you can make it? Hey, go for it. I said, Don, I don't care what they say. I'm going for it. I'm going to be out there playing right out there in right field. Hmm. Well, I was 13. Four years later, I got drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays. Didn't know what a Blue Jay was, but I got drafted. And five years later, I got a September call-up. It's in double-A. And they called me in the office and said, uh, you made it to the show. I said, wow. Where are they? And they're, they're in Arlington. I said, okay, good. My mom gets to see me. They're in Arlington, Texas. No, 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 no. They're finishing up in Arlington. 
you're going to fly up. You're going to meet them in Chicago. You're starting against the White Sox tomorrow night in right field. Mm. I, I said, what? <laughs> okay. Nice. I'm thinking about my, my buddies that said I had no chance. My first game is going to be right there. So I left 54 tickets, and I left four for those guys. So that was a huge thrill for me. So I get up there, and all the all the young guys that we were in big league camp, George, and all those guys were there. It was a huge thrill. I hit my first ball to short, and I'm thinking, oh, this is a hit. Mm. Man, this guy backhanded this ball, threw it to first, bang, bang, got me by an eyelash. So I got to the dugout, and I took my helmet off, laid it down nicely. And I said to one of my other guys, one of my buddies, I said, man, that was a hit double A a couple nights ago. And big John Mayberry, evidently, he heard me. <laughs> he goes, man, this, this is this is big leagues. They make that play every night up here. This ain't no double A. <laughs> I said, yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I sat down and shut up. So next to that, I said, keep it away from this guy. And I went the other way, single to right center, drove George in. And I stole second, went on the – one drove me in and hit safely in my first eight games. I thought it was kind of easy, but <laughs> I learned the hard way it wasn't that easy. Mm. And I think Ryan Goins, Ryan Goins uh, tied that record um, a few years ago. So we shared that record to start our, our career, eight games in a row, I believe it is. Now, you, you came up to the league, I believe it's uh, in September of 1981, how early was it before you realized, I mean, just from listening to your anecdote, you figured out very quickly that this was not double-A baseball and that you were now in the big leagues. You've made it to the show. How soon or how quick did it clue into you that you have to work extra hard because that little hop would be corralled by major league shortstops and other players defensively that could now combat what you've got as a young player to offer? Without a doubt. It was... Um... It wasn't as easy as I thought, and it took a lot of hard work. I had great mentors in front of me, Mayberry, Otto Velez, Al Woods, Barry Bunnell later on. All those guys were great teammates, and they kind of took me under their wing and made sure that everything was okay around me, and I, I greatly appreciated that. And Bobby Cox was patient. I wasn't as patient as he was. Cito Gaston was a great, great coach. He was a, he was like an uncle to me, and uh, very calm, very even, even keel temple. His his temp, his uh, even keel, his temperament was amazing, and I didn't even realize the guy was Hank Aaron's roommate, which was an amazing thing until later on. I was like, I better start listening to this guy. He might know a thing or two. Well, needless to say, Cito's a genius talking about hitting and managing a ball club. So I never had a chance to play for him as a player, but I played against him. He was amazing as a manager, just as good as a batting coach. 
And uh, I just I just hate the fact that I didn't get a chance to play for him. I got traded, and uh, he took over soon thereafter. And, and truthfully, Jesse, you should know that I am planning a special exclusive uh, with or without Cito. I'm hoping that I can get a hold of him because uh, I could devote hours on end talking about what Cito Gaston meant to this franchise, um, both in the early years and then eventually as a back-to-back World Series winning coach. What were your thoughts? What was it that made Cito special that he could make that transition? Because hitters are, hitting coaches are just usually hitting coaches. You don't experience or hear about them becoming a major league coach and having the kind of success that he did. Because not only was he part of some great teams that you were on, but obviously what he did in 1989 after a 12-24 and 24 start and then consequently winning a division title both in 89-91 and then back-to-back World Series years. Were you surprised at all at what he was able to do with those Blue Jays teams? No, not at all, because Cito understood people. And he would sit there and talk to you, and, and you knew that he cared. And that's something that, that made it easy for us young guys. We knew we had someone in our corner, someone we could trust, and if he told you something, he would do it. And that's something that, when you talk about Cito, that's the first thing that comes to mind, integrity. And when you're young, you don't know what to think. If people tell you all kind of things and different things. I remember, matter of fact, he, we, were, we were working on our on me changing some things around hitting-wise. hitting, hitting wise. And, uh, My average was going up, but it wasn't going up as fast as I thought it should. Impatient. So, on the way to the West Coast, I went up to to the coaches area on the plane. I said, Cedar, could I talk to you? He said, sure, Jess, have a seat. He scooted over. I said, see, man, I don't feel comfortable in the home plate. Is there any way I can go back to doing a couple things I was doing before? He looked at me and said, Jesse, we see progress. He didn't see I. He said, we see progress. And just him saying that, got me to thinking because, Harry, I never played AAA. And rumor it had, I was batting like just over 200. They were going to send me to AAA and give me some consistent at-bats so I could figure this thing out. And when he said, we see progress, I said, wait a minute. They, they've obviously been talking about me in a, in a positive way. So I listened. He said, you have to give this a chance. You can't just keep vacillating back and forth. I said, you really think this is going to work? He said, I know it's going to work. Well, that was good enough for me. I stayed with it. And I ended up raising my average about 50-ish points. And I ended up, I think I had about 11, 12 home runs at the time. I ended up with 27 home runs. And that's right after the first half of the season. So I would say Cito knows what he's talking about. And, uh, I only had 388 at bat, so the numbers were there. Average was was better. And the next season, I was back on the bench, and I'm thinking, oh, man, Bobby Cox does not like me. <laughs> that wasn't the case at all. You know, when you're young, your mind, your mind just wanders. And I'm probably not supposed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, my, uh, my wife loved Bobby Cox's wife, Pam, and, I, of course, I love Bobby. Now, he's a great guy. And they got together, and they, uh, Skyler, his daughter, Pam's daughter, and Josh, my oldest boy, they became really good friends, families. They would kind of sneak away and, and, and do the, the shopping thing and talk and just get away. And uh, I didn't know anything about this at first. 
because they kept it secret. And you're not supposed to hang out with, with the manager's wife. So they got to talking about me one day. And Marla, my wife Marla, said to Pam, uh, Jesse doesn't think Bobby likes him. Pam said, what? Are you kidding? Bobby loves Jesse. Yeah, he's harder on Jesse because he knows he can get more out of him. He expects more out of him. She said, really? So she came back and told me that. I was like, wow, okay, that's good to know. You know, he won't intimidate me like he, like he used to. I remember I, I took a call third strike on a high pitch, and uh, it was a hangy, hanging breaking ball. I thought it was a little high. And I came back, and I muttered something, and I kind of slammed my helmet in the rack. And Bobby goes, oh, first off, why did you take a blanking hanging <laughs> Hanging breaker ball anyway. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay. So I never complained about that again. You know, he's a no-nonsense guy. And, and I really appreciate it. He's a great teacher. And he'd be upset at you that night. But that next day, he became a real true, a true teacher. In particular, I remember a, a time when there was a runner on second. I needed to get the guy over. He said, so you're not buttoned. Get him over. And I did my best to try to hit behind him. And I go by the scouting report. I read him. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I was prepared. That guy did not have an off-speed pitch in his arsenal. I didn't read about it. I'd never seen him throw one on the videos. Nothing. He pulled a changeup out of his butt. <laughs> and I was out front. I did everything I could in my power to stay back. And I kind of nubbed it, hit off the end, and left the guy stranded a second. And Coxie wasn't too happy about that. But the next day, he called me aside. He said, listen, Bar, the next time you're in this situation, what you do, you get up in the box, you get off the plate. He explained to me why you do these things. I thought that was brilliant. And since that point, me moving in the box, knowing that it was okay to move in the box. Use the box to your advantage. I started driving the ball the other way more. And he said, now, you get up in that situation. I'm not going to just automatically bunt you. you. I know you can go the other way. So, there, you be ready. And him showing the confidence in me, little by little, and me asking him, what is it going to take for me to get better as a, as a hitter to get out there every day, and him being brutally honest with me, telling me to you learn how to hit the slider off the good righties that way, out there, right center. You'll get there. You're almost there. Not yet, but you'll be there. That made me a better hitter. It made me change my approach. And by Cito backing me and, and, and showing confidence in me and in the ball club, that showed a lot. Getting to hear you talk about, Jesse, what seemed like a really great conflux of events where you not only have a manager who's tough but fair and believes in you, but a hitting coach who's fostering the things that play to your strengths. You know, you mentioned that you met Lloyd and, and George pretty much right from the start. So you've got Lloyd Mosby and George Bell coming up with you and developing, growing together, such great, young, raw talents, all three of you. What was it like being what was eventually touted as baseball's best outfield during the mid-80s? And, and did you really regard yourself as being part of that when you were actually out there patrolling right field, playing from 5 to 87, knowing that you were part of something that has never been replicated in franchise history? 
Well, when I saw those guys out there, you know, Mo and Mo was the first one that, that was a starter. And then George came along. We got him from Fields, I believe it was, Rule 5. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I had to battle a little bit harder to get to get my position, and it finally happened. But after that, it got to the point where, you know, I looked, this, this all feels pretty good. I think <laughs> we're going to be okay. Not only from a, just an offensive standpoint, but defensively. You know, George didn't get enough credit for his defense, his throwing, his arm. And when I think it was in AAA Syracuse, George was. And his cleat, his metal cleat got caught from what I heard. I wasn't there. Like I said, I never played AAA. So I got called up from AA. I played two years in Knoxville, which is not a big deal because AA, AAA is not, not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. It's not that big of a difference, actually. And... uh George took a swing in his cleat. You know how you spin when that knee locks front knee? That cleat yeah. got caught, and he hurt his knee. And from then on, uh, he wore plastic cleats, uh, plastic spikes when he got to Exhibition Stadium. And we had the rubber warning track. And he got a, he got a raw deal from, from some of the fans, some of the people, man. He was judged harshly because they didn't realize he had rubber cleats and rubber on uh, all plastic cleats, rather, on rubber that was wet. He'd go in that corner real tentatively, and he would slide around, and, and it'd take him like 10 days to get the ball. So he he, he got labeled uh, you know, a mediocre outfielder. George Bell was not a mediocre outfielder. He was darn good and played hard, and mm-hmm. he had a lot of outfield assists. So a lot of people didn't realize that it was because of the uh, the plastic cleats. Well, and speaking of outfield assists, no one was more familiar with them during that whole stretch of time than yourself. I'm thinking back to a typical experience watching you on television in the mid-80s and seeing you as part of an outfield that, you know, George played aggressively almost every night. He would try to make throws that maybe weren't always the best advised ones, but the fact that he would always try to get a runner, a lead runner out, by trying to throw them out or having Lloyd play Mm -hmm. phenomenal center field defense. I remember thinking to myself that just by tuning in, I was able to see at least one or two of what was then regarded as an unbelievable legendary arm. And of course, it's been published and talked about. Um, I like having these arguments with industry friends and, and personal friends of mine where they try to convince me that there was someone who had a better arm but all they need to do is go to the film and watch some of your memorable throws where you were able to literally corral a ball at the warning track and then throw it directly to home plate. I have to tell you, admiring that, we don't see it as often in this game today. Why is that, Jesse? Why do you think the way outfield was played back then has changed so much compared to now? Well, the defense was a huge factor. All the outfielders played well, I would say all. The majority, the vast majority of outfielders play great defense. Uh, that's not the case now. You have a few. You have your Trouts and guys like that that are just tremendous. But they don't take infield anymore. And that was a huge uh, thing for us because it helped our accuracy. And it kept our bodies loose. It kept our arms loose. I asked a coach a few years ago, a big league coach, why don't they take outfield anymore? And he says, really, to preserve the players, make sure they don't wear themselves out. I was shocked by that answer. I'm like, are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Wow. And it didn't make sense because 
if I didn't take infield that day, I didn't feel right. My throw was like two or three inches off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I, I took pride in having pinpoint control because I worked on that. And that was the key. You may have had guys that had better arm strength, but the accuracy was something that I really worked hard on. And yes, Jimmy Williams was probably the best all-around coach that we've ever had. He knew everything about every position, the footwork, the the ins and outs of that position. I mean, he could unpack it for you and show you what to do, shortcuts here and there to make you better. He was amazing. And he would work with us young outfielders on playing balls in the corner, the, the pirouette spin moves and, you know, little things that we would work on. And Mosby was just amazing. I mean, Divine – Hands down, one of the best center fielders I've ever seen in my life. Sure. Lloyd Mosby, right there with him, neck and neck. He didn't get enough credit. The man was amazing. I remember some stretches with Mo where he he would go games and games without even coming close to making an error. Ball hit his way, you're out. And mm. he had more pop in his bat. Than I did. People didn't realize he hit a ball yeah. in the third deck one night in Oakland. I'm like, are you kidding me? That ball went up there. I'm like, wow. What Mosby was a strong young man, and he could do anything he wanted to on the baseball field. And you know, I look at those guys defensively. We played the count really well. If we played defense, we concentrated on defense. We didn't worry about if we were 0 for 3 because somebody in that lineup was going to get you anyway. It didn't have to be me. And if Lloyd was struggling, George defensively, offensively, we didn't struggle defensively. Offensively, Mm -hmm. I was going to get you. Arnie was going to get you. Someone was going to get you. So we weren't worried about that part of the game. Well, it's amazing. Yeah. uh If a hitter worked a count, and got in his favor, like 2-0, 3-1, I would look over, and Lloyd and George are already stepping to the pool side mm-hmm. along with me. And if the guy was late, was uh, behind the count, I'd look over, and they'd be moving to the opposite side. It was like synchronized swimming, the three of us. I mean, that was, I had just a little chuckle smile on my face just thinking about it because it never, I've never seen it not happen, not one time. And that showed me right there that these guys would concentrate. We would keep our focus on defense when we were on defense. It's quite remarkable also, Jesse, to think that all three of you could hit for power and run. And I think aggressive base running was a great deal of, the, I think, the hallmark, the trademark, if you will, of those mid-'80s teams. And I think it's why you were part of a 99-win team in 1985 that I've always argued was the most balanced in the history of the franchise. I mean, if not for the changes in playoff format against the Kansas City Royals, I could easily be talking to you about the 1984 Series champions of baseball. What were your thoughts about that club in 1985 and how you came into your own as a player? Well, that was my first year of, of playing every day. That was a great team. It was a balanced team. And I had a lot to prove. You know, I wanted to make sure they knew they didn't make a mistake by trusting me to play every day. <laughs> and I think the numbers spoke for themselves. And uh, when the season started, and I was out there every day, I felt like I belonged. 
and Lloyd, George, those guys were established. We had a great infield. We had a great double play combination. We had the best closer, I thought, at that time with Tom Hinkie. Mm. And the, the catchers were solid. I mean, we, we, were, we were great on the corners in the infield. We had a great platoon system going at third. I mean, there was nothing we couldn't do on the field. I, we were very confident, not cocky, but confident that we can beat anybody any given day. And it showed. Excuse me, it showed on the field. Mm. So the season starts, and it comes down to the pennant chase, down towards the end. You know what happened at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. You know, that first game, we thought we had them, and it was a miscue in the middle infield, and you don't, you don't leave a, a, a door open for the Yankees, man. Those guys are they're tough. They've always been that way. And uh, I think it was Hassey that hit a, a bomb in the upper deck, and and that place erupted. I mean, I felt the ground shake out there in right field. It was it was so loud and it was crazy. And uh, they tried to intimidate us. They did everything they could in power to, to try to scare us young guys. Man, we were so ticked off about what happened. The next day, <laughs> you know, getting off the getting off the bus, you had to walk through the crowd, right? Yeah, they didn't know what they were dealing with. <laughs> You're not going to scare us. I mean, come on, I come from Joliet. Lloyd comes from the <laughs> Oakland area. George comes from Dominican. Tony, we're we're all from the slums. And we got the country boys. You you might beat us, but you're not gonna scare us. So we're ticked off. We got our we got our headphones on. We're looking at these people like, okay, we'll we'll see what happens in there. Okay. We beat the crap out of those guys in the next three games. And I think that's mm. what showed the entire world what we were all about. And it showed us as ball players, that you know what, guys, we can go to war with anybody. You know, we can do some damage. We can do this for a long time. And that's exactly what, what happened for a few more years. And, uh, you know, they dismantled a couple of us, but the core of that team was still there. That's really fascinating because the 85 team, I think you'll agree, was one of depth and evolving talent. But that 87 team, which was another brilliant campaign, 96 wins, you've got George winning MVP, you've got Jimmy Key almost winning the Cy Young from Clemens and being Mm -hmm. the most dominant lefty in the league. You know, injuries were so pivotal in denying that team a chance at postseason play because we know what happened to Yes and Ernie and... I'm wondering how that club differed in your eyes, notwithstanding those injuries, knowing that that was going to be really the last opportunity for that group of players to win something before management had to start figuring out how to take the next step. Ari, you hit it right on the head there because it was so sad in a sense because we, that team reminded me a lot of the 85 team. We were a little more athletic at 85. We stole more bases as a, as a unit and in 86, back, backtracking just a bit first, my stolen bases went down simply because I overslid the bag in Minnesota. Mm. Uh, I did a hook slide, and I was safe. But for some reason, I reached across my body to get the bag because I overslid. Instead of reaching across with my right hand, I reached across my body with my left hand. And my knee was already hooked for the slide, and I kind of strained, and I felt something pop. And 
I thought it was an ACL there for a second. I went, oh. So I finished the game, but I ended up getting a cortisone shot right after the game in that knee from the team doctor. I wasn't coming out of the lineup because I was hitting the ball great. And I asked the doctor, he gave it the exam, he turned it left, right, shook it. You know, I do make sure you're, you're still intact there. Mm-hmm. He said, no, everything's good. All the, all the, uh, the tendons are good. Ligaments, everything's good. I said, well, Doc, how long is this going to take? He said, uh, we could be talking about a week to 10 days. I said, uh-uh, not happening. I said, you got some cortisone on you? <laughs> he goes, yeah, we got cortisone. This is so localized. I said, nook this thing, man. Let's go. Come on. He got to hit the spot. It was sore as hell. I want to punch somebody. It was so, <laughs> it was so sore. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't able to run as much as I, I could. I mean, it was sore for probably a, mm, a good month. And uh, but I was I was able to play defense. I was and it got better during the season. Mm-hmm. But you could say goodbye to the stolen bases the rest of my career after that stupid move. Mm-hmm. But you don't go from twenty some stolen bases to single digits. That's exactly what happened. And the wrist. I'm sharing things with you that a lot of people don't know. But I'm mm-hmm. just being honest. The wrist. Well, mm-hmm. we were. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Yeah, the wrist. I was playing in the All-Star Tour in 86. I did two of those. Did one in 1990 with the Yankees. They asked me to come back. I don't know why. <laughs> I came back. I had a mediocre year, but I did finish in the top 10 in homers. But I did go back. It was fun in 90. My last at bat, I singled, got a base hit. I stole second, and I drugged my hand. It was the same wrist that I'd had a, a basketball injury when I was in high school. I broke my wrist in high school, and it was a little small chip. So uh, I evidently jarred it loose and didn't think anything of it. Last game, I felt a little tingle in it, shook it off. You know, when you're young, you just shake it off. Yeah. Go to spring training, had the best spring training of my life. I'm ready to start the season. Had a great first half. Almost mirrored my first half of 86. Had 19 homers, didn't make the All-Star team. Ah, no big deal. So I ended up with 28 home runs right after the All-Star break. Amazing. My wrist started acting up. I'm like, what the heck is Got a cortisone shot again. Actually, the first one in that wrist. And the wrist was never the same. And uh, after the season, a couple of trips to the doctors, two said, get the bone chip taken out Two said don't touch it it's very important bone you don't want to mess with that joint leave it so I said, oh, okay let me take this thing out well wasn't a good move so it took me a while to get get the strength back and uh i was never able to drive the ball the other way consistently like i was a like i did in 86 85 and half of 87. So that's what happened. If we look at, let's say, 1986, I mean, let's think about you've got 40 home runs, you you get the silver slugger, you win a gold glove, you're an all-star. How did you deal with the highs and lows in that regard? Like, let me ask you first with 1986, what was it like dealing with all the fame and success as being a member of a Canadian Major League Baseball team going to the all-star game? Well, you know what? It was 
it didn't change me at all. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. I remember going to the All-Star game, and I'm sitting there with the guys in Houston uh, getting dressed, and and the Blue Jays were all together, and the other guys you played against, you know, the Puckets and all the – we had a blast. We're sitting in there talking and laughing, and we all felt like we belonged. And this was great. You thought you were going to do a few more. At least I did. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, I'm from a family that they will never let you get the big head. They always bring you back down to earth anyway, so I like that. And matter of fact, I remember when Mac, John McNamara, who was an all-star um, manager, Boston Red Sox. Yeah. We played Boston after the second half. He came to me, and I, I respect him even more to this day. He said, could I talk to you for a second? I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I know you're on a, st- on a snub list. He said, I owe you an apology. I said, for what? He said, you should have been on the All-Star team. We needed your defense, too. They chose Parrish over me because Parrish had 20 home runs, not the catcher. I'm talking Larry Parrish, yeah. not Lance. And, and I'm like, oh, that was really big of him to say that. But the 20 home runs, you know, was kind of uh, glamorous to him over the 19. You know, 19 is still is, it's the same as 13. You know what I mean? It's, it's 10. Yeah. <laughs> so that one home that one home run killed me. And uh, I said, well, thank you, Coach. I appreciate that. And, and, and listen, don't worry about it. But can I get that 25000 that I would have won from you, you know? That would have been nice Christmas money. A nice bonus. Yeah. No, no. We we laughed we laughed about it, but uh, not a big deal. It was nice of him to do that. But you know, just getting back to the point where trying to help us win a pennant again—that's all I cared about, honestly. Yeah. And I had spurts where I was able to get my swing back to where it was, but it wasn't consistent, and that's okay. And of course, that to retiring at, at a really young age of 32. I I remember when it was announced and reading about it in the newspaper and thinking that that's just the, I guess, cruel reality of baseball with injuries sometimes. Although one of the things I did like about your career in particular was that you ended up playing for the New York Yankees. And, of course, they're in town in present day right now as the Blue Jays are trying to see whether they can maybe still make a postseason push. And anytime the Yankees, especially when they're competitive, it's a opportunity for fans to come out and appreciate what a rivalry means. What was the rivalry like back then, knowing that the Yankees themselves were struggling to be legitimate and wouldn't see much success until after you had already left them and, and moved on from your playing career? What were your memories of playing for the Yankees, both as a Blue Jay playing against them and then being one wearing the Bronx Bombers pinstripes? Well, as a Blue Jay playing against them, it was very exciting. You knew you were going to get a, a big crowd, uh, a crowd that stayed in the game, that made sure that they could intimidate a team. They were going to intimidate you if they could. And you, know, you, you really looked forward to playing those guys. You wanted mm-hmm. to beat them. You hated them. You know, they were the glamour team. They, yeah. they were on TV all the time. You hate that. And Frankly, when they came to Toronto, they kind of they kind of beat our butt. They beat up on us a lot, and we went to New York. It was like we beat them on home on their home turf. Mm. 
And you kind of like it the other way around. I'd rather beat them in ours. And if we're going to lose, lose there if you're going to lose. But, you know, Winfield and those guys and Mattingly, I would have hated to have been Rance Bullinex or Garth Orge at third base and him hitting those hard lasers down the third baseline on the turf. Man, that that's not fair at all. Yeah. And, and and that's when Winnie went in the prime of his career. So that's that's amazing. But as a Yankee, as a Yankee, you, you fully understand. You know, no one you, – you, I can't explain that until you become a Yankee, how incredible it is to play there. Uh, I remember meeting Lance Berkman in Toronto. We both live in Houston, mm-hmm. and he was a Yankee. And I asked Lance, I said, hey, man, it's funny, we, we both live in Houston, we keep missing each other, just missing each other, and we finally meet. We kind of chuckled about that, and we got to talk, say, hey, by the way, man, how you like playing for the Yanks? He goes, dude, everything is first class here. This is real baseball. Wow. And he hit it right on the head. I remember George Steinbrenner, he bought, he got a, a pinstripe plane for us. And this is when we were mediocre. We had a good stretch. We were just playing. Now, offensively, we're going we're gonna to do some damage. We can still hit. And we had a few decent pitchers, pitchers, but nothing like they had, you know, when Joe Torre and those guys were there. Actually, Buck Showalter was the one that started all that. And then Joe Torre took over. But we could hit. We're going to score some runs. And he got a pinstripe plane, a customized plane with two couches at the back, I don't know where he got a big flat screen TV, but he got one. <laughs> they didn't even have TVs like that then. And me being one of the older guys, uh, I had first dibs on the movie, so I would choose a nice movie. I didn't hog the couch all the time. I kind of mix it up, let the guys you know, choose a movie and all that, but it was nice. Well, we had a stretch where we started playing bad. <laughs> mm. And George said, hey, I can take this plane, I'll tell you. You guys want to go regular charter? We could do that, too. Let's go. So we we had a meeting amongst ourselves. Dude, uh, we need to kick this in gear. I kind of like that playing. So he all, all he wanted to do was win. The guy loved to win. And mm. a lot of things you hear about him, totally untrue. That man had a heart of gold. I really mean that with all sincerity. Mm. You think about it. He gave... He gave people second chances that no no way he did. Everyone had given up on Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry. They'd thrown those guys in the trash, but not him. And he helped. They were very instrumental in winning some of those World Series. But he was the type of person that always rooted for the underdog. He would give you another chance. And I remember... I often wondered why he was so kind to me and why he treated me with so much respect. And because mm. uh, I, I had the talk to, you know, he, he gave every every player the talk, what he expected. And I tell him, say, listen, this time, I, I'll do my part. Don't worry. I won't, I won't make you ashamed. I'll do my part. I'll contribute. Mm. And, you know, things got to the point where I remember in 89, when I was going to become a free agent, they took my contract off the table. And the team was playing bad, and I didn't know that they'd taken every contract off the table. 
So we go to Boston, and Arthur Richmond, one of his right-hand men, Arthur called me and said, the boss wants to see you. So I go down the elevator and go across the other side to the, you know, to the night side. I go up the elevator. The door was open. And he had all kind of finger food and fruit and everything waiting. Hey, get you something to eat. Yes, sir. Straight to the point. He said, you wonder why I took the contract off the table? I said, yes, sir. As a matter of fact, I was wondering. He said, well, don't, don't wonder. I took everybody's contract off the table because I want to talk to each one of you guys individually to find out if you really want to be here where your heart is and blah, blah, blah. I said, of course I want to. I want to play here with the Yankees. You know, that's why we were negotiating with you guys. He said, well, do you have a problem with going down to the mini camp to work on your swing? Because I know that you could have done better. We know we can get more out of you. Wow. I said, I have no problem with that. Not at all. I said, how long is the minicamp? He said, 10 days. I said, I'll be there. So we talked a little bit, and we get down to Tampa. It was in Tampa at the time, although spring training was still in Fort Lauderdale. But minicamp was in Tampa, and we're on the outfield. George was there, and we're shagging. I'm waiting my turn to hit. And I smelled this cologne he had on. This stuff smelled pretty good, you know, brother is fragrance. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, I said, man, what, uh, what, what do you have on? What is that? He said, that's the Baron. I said, the, the what? <laughs> you know, I didn't talk to him like we're talking. Yeah, I wasn't intimidated by him. I wasn't, I wasn't brought up that way. I said, man, that smells good. He said, you like that, huh? I said, yeah, that's nice. So I go in and hit, finish the mini camp. We got the deal done three-year deal he took care of me and i get home and i got a big old case of the baron waiting for me right yeah and so while we were out there in the outfield i mentioned to him i said listen mr steinbrenner 399 and left center field he moved in i heard he moved it in for jack uh jack clark yeah he signed him so i said you know what I'll, i'll see if he can move it in another 10 for us and I said, listen, I hit a lot of balls. Roberto hit a lot of balls. We have some righties in our lineup that could help us. We hit a lot of balls to the track, to the fence. If you move that thing in 10 feet, we can help our offense. We have mm. our games at home. I said, would you consider having it moved in 10 feet? I, said, I, I probably wouldn't even be here talking about this right now. You know, the numbers wow. have to go up. So he said, you know what, I'll, I'll do it. So I go home, and I got to be pretty good friends with the grounds crew guy, the head of the grounds crew. So I called him. I said, hey, did, uh, did George talk to you about you guys moving the fence? He said, yeah. Matter of fact, we, we had it staked out. He called us right away. We had it staked out 10 feet. And they didn't sign, I think, two or three of the pitchers they were going after. And George called back. He said, uh, take those stakes out. We wow. cannot afford to go into the season with the pitching <laughs> staff we have right now with 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 389. No, get, keep it at 399. No. So he was a man of his word. He he did it. He was going to have it moved in had we signed a couple pitchers. So in any event, Susan Wallman, and I don't know if you're aware of that situation with George when he kind of cussed her out in the locker room that time. Mm-hmm. 
A mm-hmm. lot of people don't realize that. Well, George and I are still fine. We're, we're, we're still best friends. But at that time, I what he did was flat out wrong. Yeah. I never met her. It was her first day on the job. I didn't know who or what a Susan Wallman was. So here in comes this lady. George had a great game, two home runs. And the second one put us ahead. We won it. I hit a double. I had three hits that game. I hit a double to tie it. And then George ended up hitting the bomb to, to help us win it. Another one. That sound like DJ Cali. Another one. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> my wife said, I'm the biggest kid in the world. I can't help it. Anyway, so we were in the locker room and the media was at his locker. And uh, in comes Susan. And we were still dressed. And he sees her, man, he started ripping her a new one. F bombs. Oh. It was it was it was really it was so bad. Ari the the other clubhouse guys went in the other room. Really? I'm looking around oh, my. I'm I'm telling you, it was bad. And I'm looking at Ernie and everybody and the older guys, I'm like, dude, you guys go say something to this cat here? This is wrong. You can't intimidate this lady like this. And she's backing up to the door, man. And you could tell she's like shocked, her face, right? About to cry. And I asked one of the New York media guys, I said, hey, man, what's that lady's name? And, he, and one of the guys asked, Susan's just Susan something. They didn't like her either. <laughs> you know, you invade her, you invade their territory there. You know what I mean? So she's almost wow. at the door. And I, said, and I said, hey, Susan, I went three for five. You want to interview me? <laughs> so she stopped. Came in, came back. She says, I, I gave her a great interview. I don't remember what we talked about. And she decided not to stop. She, had she made it to that door, she was quitting. That was yeah. it for baseball. And so, long story short, she overcame cancer. She's the one that ended the feud between Yogi and George. She brought a lot of the media together. It was amazing. Matter of fact, that story, if you go on 2020, call me. Mm-hmm. And Dateline called me and wanted to get all the facts straight before they aired it. They did. They got it right. Uh, if you go to 2020, actually, if you go to uh, YouTube uh, and you punch in Jesse Barfield rescues Susan Wallman, it's mm-hmm. like a 10-minute 10 10 minute story. It's, it's, it's great. It's not about just that. It's her story. It's really a neat story, how she overcame cancer and and. Her and Daryl Strawberry went to chemo together, and the team banded together. Her and Joe Torre. Joe went through prostate cancer at the same time, and they all wow. got closer. Well, the Yankees, yeah, the Yankees' TV contract was up. And TV contract in New York is no small change. So George was talking to the TV, TV station and working out the deal, and he wanted to bring Susan along. They didn't want to bring Susan along. George said, okay, fine. No problem. No Susan, no contract. Oh, what the, oh no. Oh, okay, we'll take Susan. <laughs> so George, George stood up for Susan. So George likes Susan, too. She's a, she's, a, she's a great person. She really is a good person. No one else thought it was necessary to end that feud. She could have lost everything, but she, she did what she had to do. And they changed the format of Old Timers Day. Yogi, it was Yogi Berra Day, and it was the day that David Cole pissed the perfect game, and she called it. 
amazing. That's that that's amazing for obviously having you share that story makes you appreciate what was going on during that era, but also I'm thrilled to know that you were able to get an opportunity to play with the New York Yankees. I mean, I think you'll agree that's like the hockey equivalent of playing for the Montreal Canadiens. No matter what you experience, yes. good or bad, you will always have that as the feather in the Barfield cap to tell other people, you know what, I play for the most extraordinary franchise, the, the gold standard in baseball. Without a doubt. I played there for years, and I say it often. You've probably read it. You know, the Blue Jays treat me great. Don't, mm -hmm. don't get me wrong. They're a great organization. I mean, there's a lot of different people here. They're still good people. The Yankees, I played there four years, and I was injured a year and a half. And, you know, they treat me like family. They really do, too. And a little different here. A little different, a little different in New York than, than, than Toronto. Uh, my first couple of years, you had your veteran guys like uh, – Gidry and Goose, all those guys. You know, I would sit back like I did as a as a young guy here. I didn't say a whole lot. I watched guys, and I did the same thing when I went over there. Uh, like for the fantasy camps and, and and for the appearances, the old timers, and those guys would would watch you. They they you, you're on probation. You know they don't just open, welcome you with open arms. Then all of a sudden they would start sharing stories with me, and, and their attitude. And Ron Guidry was like the matriarch, you know, he was he was the guy, oh, you know, he was the, he was the king of the castle. And all of a sudden he wraps his arms around me and I'm like, Okay, I guess I'm a true Yankee now. So hmm. they're inviting me to everything. I'm like, This is a good feeling to feel that you're a true Yankee. And I love the Blue Jays, don't get me wrong. I'm always mm -hmm. gonna love the Blue Jays. That's no secret. You know, I I, I bleed blue. But I appreciate everything the Yankees did for me sure. and their family, too. You mentioned someone like Ron Guidry. I mean, you were surrounded by some really talented baseball players. And, of course, being in an era where we had some players that I, I think broke the mold, I'm talking about the Tony Gwynn of the world. I'm talking about the Wade Boggs. I'm talking about the kinds of pure hitters out there that um, the game has few and far between. Who did you admire as you were going through your playing career, that every time you came across in the ba on the battlefield, you stopped and said to yourself, wow, that is one heck of a baseball specimen. Who, who really caught your attention while you played? Well, from a hitting standpoint, I thought George Brett mm. was sent from heaven. Oh, boy. Although I hated facing him because he killed us, he could do some things with the bat that I'd never seen. You need a double, hit a double. You need a single, you go the other way, throw it back, get your single. The man can take you deep. He can do anything you want it. He's one of the best clutch hitters I've ever seen. Smart. I would say George Brett. It was a lot of great hitters around. Bo Jackson had tremendous opposite field power. Yeah. Had he not had that hip injury, oh, my goodness. Who knows what would have happened. And... On and on and on. There's so many great hitters, so many great players, uh, guys that could throw, guys that could run, a lot of 5-2 guys. And you don't see that a whole lot as much nowadays, but yeah. they're out there. You know, you look at your, your Mike Trouts. I mean, that's, that's a throwback guy right there. He's a real mm -hmm. deal. 
I think baseball has so much trouble with marketing him, Jesse. I, I tweeted that this afternoon, how he became the fourth fastest player to get to 1,000 hits and 500 runs scored and 500 walks, which are just amazing statistics when you consider how hard it is, as you know, to play the game of baseball. Why is it that we don't hear more about Mike Trout? Why is it that some of these 80s and 90s stars like Ken Griffey Jr. and Don Mattingly were so seamlessly marketed and accepted by fans? But I, I get the impression we sometimes just don't hear enough about the Mike Trouts of the world. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. I mean, he's out there in L.A., almost, you know. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's because the team itself isn't winning right now. No. That has a lot to do with it. Uh, and that's unfortunate because I think Mike Socha is outstanding. I really do. But I can't pinpoint that. I mean, that, that's a tough one there. Because I know my son, when he's in the front office with their, with uh, his own Diamondbacks. And I, I went yeah. with him when he went to Houston to, uh, you know, to scout some games. And I'm watching, I'm watching Trout play for the first time live. And up close, I'm like, this this is unreal. I would pay a lot of money to see this kid play. And, and don't bat an eye, don't blink. He's real. Oh yeah, yeah, no question. He's about gonna that. if he stays healthy, he's gonna shatter almost every record. If he stays healthy, so he's a type of guy like a Fred McGriff that's quietly putting up numbers. Of course, Freddie's probably not gonna make the Hall of Fame, but he should be there. Agreed. And and, and and Trout, of course, a step above Fred. Not not to take anything away from Fred. Trout's amazing. Mm. Outfield is a little different from first base. I mean, Trout's going to win a lot of gold gloves, too. But uh, he's a base stealer. Freddie wasn't. You know, but Freddie was very consistent. And Trout, you can't, you can't get much better than that. Well, and consistency, which is, I think you'll agree, the most important part of baseball. It's the reason why fans um, sometimes find themselves losing their sanity because of the ups and downs of baseball. And Fred McGriff was one of those players who for a very, very long time on some really great Bobby Cox coached Atlanta Braves team proved to be the kind of player that I think like you, uh, we agree it deserves to be in the hall of fame. Um, I'd be remiss Jesse, if I didn't ask you about something that I was always curious about, because when I was younger, I saw a baseball film called Mr. Baseball that wasn't a particularly great baseball film. There are better ones out there, but basically <laughs> Tom Selleck went to play uh, baseball in Japan. And, of course, in 93, you were a member of the Yomiuri Giants. I hope I'm pronouncing that. Yomiuri Giants, that's right. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm wondering, listeners, what was it like, especially during that era? Because Japanese baseball today is, is of course, something that has um, become so popular that we're seeing more and more players, expatriates and, and uh, new players from that league coming in and just seamlessly becoming major league players, which is so great for the sport. What was it like for you, though, back in the early 90s to take your, your box of major league skills on display for a, a brand new audience in a completely exotic foreign place in the world? It was definitely different. You know, I, I was familiar with it because I, I'd gone over there uh, to do a couple of all-star tours, and we went over in 1989 to do what was called a U.S.-Japanese baseball summit with uh, with several major leaguers to teach 
the Japanese players how to play Americanized baseball because they play very conservative. You know, they'll hug the lines the whole game. They believe mm. they'll give you a single. I mean, they'll give you a single, but you're not going to hit a ball down the line. I thought that was kind of crazy because how many times you see a ball hit down the line? And you see a lot of balls hitting the hole. So thank you for those easy singles. And you don't see a whole lot of great throwing arms over there. They'll have two cuts on the ball where we'll, we'll hit the cutoff, man. Or you'll have some guys uh, don't even need a cutoff, man. So, But you got to keep the ball low. At least make it look like it's going to hit the cutoff, man, so the guy won't advance. You know, the, the hitter that hit it. So mm. you got you to gotta, you gotta camouflage it a little bit. But uh, Japanese baseball, it was probably 4A at the time. Right now, it's a lot better. Oh, yeah. The players are bigger and stronger. Uh, Hideki Matsui and I were teammates. And after Lloyd got hurt, Hideki got called up about halfway through the season. And when they take batting practice, you, they, they, you don't know who's going to start. The starting pitchers. You don't know who's going to be their starting pitcher until, like, almost game time, which is I don't understand that. That's just the way it is. So they have two batting cages going at the same time, right-hand pitcher, and then you go into the left-hand pitcher's cage. Hmm. Why? I don't know. <laughs> so just in case it's a righty, you're ready, which was kind of good. You got, you got great quality BP every day. So if they change pitchers on you in the second inning, you were ready for them. And – so Lloyd had already gone home because he had tore a tendon in his foot uh, rounding first base on a double. Because, you know, we, we got to choose our, uh, our equipment. And my interpreter said, hey, uh, Rawlings is here, and they're here to, to, to measure you. I said, well, I'm a, I'm a size 12 shoe. I'm a 13 now, but I'm a, I was a 12 then. And... I said, I'm a 12. No, no, no. He said, they trace your feet. You get everything custom. He said, batting gloves, too. I said, well, I'm a double XL. No, no, no. They trace it. So Lloyd got his shoes, and he had them made really, really light because he's a speed guy. Well, when he did that, the plastic couldn't hold his, his natural body weight, and he goes around first base, and his cleat exploded. And it, it was, he was done. He popped that tendon. And so I had to play center field for a while until they got a real center fielder. I could I wasn't made for that. So the outfielders were different. They were smaller. They didn't hit for as much power. And the games were shorter. You know, fundamentally, they did little things. They, they would try to get that quick run, and they would bunt. Here, we bang. Did you ever get a chance to meet um, the Babe Ruth of Japanese baseball, Sadaharu O? Yes, sir. Several occasions. I have a, I have a nice photo with him. Oh, wow. What was I that? I love Sadaharu. Really nice man. Mm. Amazing. Yeah, so, excuse me. I'm, I'm, there's an echo because I'm trying to plug up my, my iPad. The battery's dying on me. No, you're fine. My son's coming up to hit. So I don't want to miss his at bat. His history is on the line. <laughs> I, I think we call this uh, legitimately first world problems, the best kind. <laughs> <laughs> right? You struggling with yeah, your he's gonna ask, son, do well in he's a baseball ask game. 
<laughs> yeah, he's going to ask me, Dad, you see my at bat? Nope. Don't interview. I don't care about you. That ain't going to happen. <laughs> but the Japanese baseball is uh, the pitchers, for example. Yeah. They will throw you like the best, their best pitch. Um, Sasaki, the closer for, uh, he was a closer for the uh, Seattle Mariners. He was actually the closer for the, the uh, Yokohama Bay Stars when I was there. High 90s with a nasty splitter. Opening night, uh, he tried to sneak some high cheddar by me, and I got him. Home run. And uh, that was a big deal. Next time I faced him, not even close with a fastball. Splitter, splitter, splitter. Walk. Next time, splitter, splitter. <laughs> I asked him, those guys speak good English. I said, Sasaki-san, you throw 98. Why you don't throw me fastball anymore? He said, you home run opening night, no more fastball for you. I said, okay, no problem. <laughs> they will not throw you. They'll throw you what they think you can't handle. And that, a lot of times they'll get beat on their second best pitch, which you don't see that over here very often. So as a hitter, you figure them out. Most of us have better second halves because we think Americanized baseball. We don't think like them. So that's a word to the wise. If you ever go play Japanese baseball, think like Japanese pitchers. Well, and, and you heard it here first. They have long memories. So clearly you experienced that firsthand. Um, what yep. an amazing journey, really, uh, Jesse. Have you Give me an idea. Have you ever thought about uh, writing about your experiences, given that you, you really, in, in a, what was a relatively short baseball career, because, I mean, because of early retirement at 32, you had to kind of take stock of what you've done. Do you feel looking back that you accomplished, I mean, short of winning a championship, which is what baseball players play for and what the ultimate goal is, do you have any regrets about the things that you accomplished in baseball? Are there certain things you look back at and say maybe you would have zigged instead of zagged? Well, not really, because growing up, I grew up without a father, and I had good people around me that kind of filled in the gap, kept me you know, on, on, a, on a good track, if you will. Uh, my grandmother actually raised me for my first three, almost four years. My mom had to ask, actually kidnap me from her <laughs> wow. while she was at work. Yeah, and I used to call my grandmother Mama. And so, yeah, I'm going to write a book. You know, I, I uh, one day, and I'm just going to simply call it Jesse. Um, I, I was introduced to my father as a friend of the family, my natural father. And there was a gentleman that, amazing gentleman by the name of Jesse, that my mom, he and my mom started dating after my natural father. My mom, my mom was madly in love with that guy. He was a good guy at the time. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there, but well, I was there. But <laughs> anyway, so he he uh, went elsewhere. He, he abandoned us, and he married someone else. So broke her heart. And so Jesse stepped in, and uh, I was named after him. So I thought he was my natural father, and I was told that. And so for years, and then one day, I'm in Chicago, and I get a phone call. And 
the lady on the other end said, uh, you know, this is your grandmother, and I'm getting ready to hang up the phone. Man, it's not funny. My grandmother passed away. Mm. I said, lady, this is not a, it's a prank here. I'm getting ready. I, I'm, I, don't have, I don't have, I don't want to hear this. She said, no, please do not hang up. Then she started reeling off nicknames, only that, like, Ari would know, right? Yeah. I said, this is real. So I'm listening to this. She said, uh, oh, okay. So anyway, she told me the real story, and I called my mom. And I never I never heard my mom cuss. Well, she didn't cuss at me. <laughs> she was bad. So I said, listen, Mom, I'm not mad at you. Let me finish the season. I just felt like I had a right to know who my dad was. It's not a big You're still my girl. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We'll talk about it when I get home. And, uh Listen, you're good. Everything's fine. I don't need a dad now anyway. You know what I mean? No big deal. <laughs> so anyway, I got home after this season, and I went down. She lived near Clear Lake. And I went down and visited, and we talked and hugged and cried. And as you know, a matter of fact, I owe her a phone call. She called me the other day. I got it. We've been traveling. I got to call and check on mom. She's awesome. She did a great job. And, uh, you know, I tip my hat to her. That's that's truly inspirational stuff, and I think uh, if anything, it should embolden you to get working on that book because I, I'd like to order at least three copies right off the hop. So certainly, if you decide to put your time and energy into this, I think you'll have no shortage of anecdotes and perspectives. Jesse, tell my listeners today the Barfield perspective on the Toronto Blue Jays of 2017. What are your thoughts when you look at this season and? knowing how things went the last couple of years after a very long stretch of futile, largely mediocre baseball with no playoffs, suddenly the city mm-hmm. gets a take. We're, you know, seeing 40,000 show up every night, league in attendance, but it's been a tough year. It's been a frustrating year. What's your philosophical take that might make fans appreciate what is happening and what's to come? Well, you know, you think back and you say, well, what happened here? Injuries. It all started with the injuries. Why is that? And, of course, driving and, and certain things, you, you never want to second-guess anyone, and I won't ever do that because it's tough enough in the front office as it is. But you wonder why those things happen, how and why people are getting injured so much. Yeah. And it, it dawned on me, driving the other day, could it be because they don't take infield? anymore i don't know could be they 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 take batting i was asking sandy alamont today who's been around the game a long time after batting practice that's a long time to sit from bp to game time the body the muscles shrink you don't stay loose the infield helps you get prepared for the game. Your muscles warm back up. You don't have that anymore. So by them trying to preserve their players and you know, I think they ended up maybe even hurting them a little bit. I don't know. Because mm. I know I didn't feel right. Like I said earlier, I didn't feel right without injury. I know my arm wasn't quite the same. So that could have something to do with it. I don't know the train. Everybody's stronger, bigger. They train differently. I mean, I weight trained, but I stressed a lot too. They do. 
Yeah. Um, the guys are in great shape, but I don't. I'm not there. Honestly, I'm not involved in any of that stuff. But mm. we are. Uh, we're still wondering, scratching our heads. Everybody, all the fans. How are we getting injured so much? What's different? Yeah. And it's not just here. It's a lot of places. It's an epidemic across the league, really, isn't it? It is. I mean, I didn't even know what an oblique was until recently. So I, I, to pinpoint it, I don't know. But I know one thing. It's it's very frustrating, but at the same time, you always look for the positive for the future. I know that we have a great farm system now, which is always a plus. A lot of teams don't. They can't say that. Yeah. Um you look at what Smoke did, uh, you, you know you miss Edwin. Of course, of course. he was a great uh, clubhouse presence as well. But if you sign Edwin, Smokey doesn't get the at-bats. And, you, you know, so tomato, tomato, I don't know. You know what I mean? So what a great year that kid is having. And he's not finished yet, Justin Smoke. I agree. And... Uh, Edwin, you're always going to root for him. Class act. I met him at the golf tournament, Blue Jays golf tournament. And uh, you always root for him. He, he's a class act. He really is. But a lot of guys had career years last year, and they were healthy. They stayed on the field. Baseball's a tough game. If you're injured, key players, and the bad thing about it, their pitchers got hurt this year. Good luck with that. You got to have the pitchers. And last year, they were the envy of Major League Baseball. That pitching staff—it's amazing how things can change very quickly in this game. And you, being someone who was no stranger to you, being no stranger to what a 162-game regular season schedule represents in this game, what do you say to fans who still cling to hope that? In an era of baseball with wild card slots, which I'm sure to you, being in your era of baseball must seem rather surreal and some people would argue silly, but knowing that there's more opportunity, do you still maybe believe that this team has the capacity to do one last momentum push to give them a shot to do that? Or would you look at this team and say best to kind of prepare for 2018 and regroup? Well, if if they're thinking like that now, Something's wrong with them. I can't see that. Yeah. You until you're mathematically eliminated. You put that uniform on. You bust your butt. You try to win every ball game you can. You know you have personal pride, and I know these guys are hard workers, man. They they work hard. They try. They do their best. And baseball. That's all you can do. You know that the winning part. That's that's really out of your control. You fund you do the fundamental things well. You build the team around your strengths. But I do know one thing: our '85 team, '86, '87 team, we were well-rounded. We didn't rely on the long ball. And we were talking about that last year, year before last. When you rely on the long ball, and if it's not there, it's not going to be pretty. And it is what it is. When I was coaching for the Seattle Mariners, 
Lou Pinella, I went into his office. He was the manager. I went into his office. I was the, bat- I was the uh, batting coach. Hmm. And our offense was at the very top in almost every offensive category. But we were getting away with some things because of the three-run home run bailing us out. So I went and to lose offense as little man. I'm concerned about our offense. He goes, what? I said, Lou, come on. We got too many bangers in this lineup. We got to have some guys to move the ball. We got to have some guys to keep the ball in right field. The first and third, keep the merry-go-round going. I said, you know, actually a lot of times a home run is a rally killer. But he said, I see your point. I'll see what they can do in the front office. They don't want to spend any money, but I'll talk to them and see. Okay, and just some, just a thought of mine. So now they're moving to Safeco Field. They open it up a, actually a half a year early because it wasn't supposed to be ready until the following year. In fact, I think a person died building it. They rushed it. So they poured concrete down the drain. It was in water. They poured water down and concrete, in, and it backed up the sewer system in Safeco Field. There's just some things that people don't realize. So backed up the sewer system. We lost our batting cage, our indoor batting cage, for like three home stands. It was contaminated. They had to take all the dirt out, redo everything, and put new dirt in. You can't, you can't walk in sewage. So needless to say, it was not the same offensive output after that. Yeah. Because it's a covered field, but the side of it is open. So if it's 70 outside, it's 70 inside. Puget Sound is right there. If it's hot, it's hot. If it's cold, it's cold. If it's windy, you can still feel the wind. It's just covered. So Griffey hits a ball. It's gone. The wind knocks it down. And the roof is closed. Next time up, hits one even harder. The guy catches it at the fence. He comes back and slams his bat against the helmet rack. And Lou said, Jesse, you better go get him. I said, you go get him. I'm not going down there. So he goes back out to play defense. And I, I went to survey the damage. <laughs> I showed the coaches. I said, man, look at this. And he he put a hole with his bat straight clean through to the other helmet rack. It was level. And so Griffey comes back. I said, Junior, come here, man. He said, what is it? I said, Man, you're amazing. I said, even your snap swings, your, even your snaps are level. Look how level that is. All the way. He said, man, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I hate this place. I said, I know, man. It's going to be okay. He said, I hate this place. So, you know, Cameron, for him, it worked out great. He, he needed a change of scenery. And that they built that team around that ballpark. You notice that. And then that's the way he won all those games. It was speed. We didn't rely on the long ball. As much we had, we could hit long balls. When I was in Toronto, we could steal bases. We were well-rounded. And now we go to Safeco. Luke calls me in the office. Jesse, what's wrong with our offense? <laughs> I said, you remember when I came into your office a few months ago, and I told you that I was concerned about our offense. I said. You know how we go over to the Metropolitan Grill at least once a homestand, talk about our team, what we can improve on, and blah, blah, blah. Yep. I said, you go in the bathroom 
at Metropolitan Grill, they got this aerosol spray. This is what I told Lou. So we got this aerosol spray that hides the funk in the bathroom, stink. I said, okay, that, that was Safeco Field. I'm sorry, that was Kingdom. Now we got Safeco Field. There is no aerosol can. Here's the stink I was telling you about. It's right here now. He goes, hmm, well said. Go home. Enjoy your family, man. I'll see you tomorrow. So he was getting ready to rip me because our offense was at the top. Now it's middle road. I tried to tell you this is not baseball. You don't win. You don't win games by beating the crap out of the ball, hitting homers. You win baseball by playing baseball. Well said. And I have to say, Jesse, I really appreciate the fact that you took the time um, to visit with me and, and, and talk about baseball, your time with the Blue Jays, some of these amazing de- anecdotes that I know my listeners will appreciate. Tell my listeners what you're up to these days and what they should know about your involvement with the Blue Jays and how they can find you on the web. Well, what I'm doing now is I'm one of the three ambassadors. Uh, you got Mo, Shaker Mo, you got Dwayne Ward, myself. They came in and asked me to do this. And I said, you know what? I'd do it anyway, so why not? I love people. I love the fans. And, uh, you know, why not uh, hang around them a little more and, and enjoy them? Because I love the Canadian people. I really do. And I fell in love with them in the 80s. And they treat me great. And, and we're family. And I spend a lot more time here uh, than I did in the past. And that's okay. I love it. I love the United States, but this is my second home. And, you know, when I get back home, I know all my guys are going to be mad at me because I spent two weeks in a row up here yeah, you know, at the academy, you know, at the edge. I love working with the kids, and that's where I am. So I'm there and I'm here. So I spend a lot of time in batting cages. You know, Lloyd, Lloyd and I laugh about it all the time. We never spend time at home. <laughs> but we're home. We're home. But that's basically it. We were enjoying our grand our grandkids. Josh is getting ready to have his first, and my daughter's pregnant with their third. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have four soon, four grandkids. Amazing blessings, and and the type of thing that I know that fans of yours and those who followed your career will be thrilled to hear. I've been speaking with Jesse Barfield, two-time Gold Glove winner, American League All Star, voted. Major League Baseball's best arm of the decade in the 80s. Silver slugger, and I have to say this, 162 outfielders, basically one for each day of a baseball regular season. Jesse, I can't thank you enough for finding the time on behalf of all my followers and listeners, so I'm sure we'll appreciate this. Thank you for joining me on the Jays Journal podcast tonight. Thank you, Ari. It's my pleasure. We'll do it again sometime. Looking forward to it. I've got you pegged for a round table. And as I mentioned, now we've got to start the campaign to get Shaker Mo and Bell on with you. And I think that we would probably break the internet if I could get a round table going with the best of <laughs> in baseball. No problem. Just tell me what I need to do. I'll help you do that. You got it. Cheers. Thank you, Jesse. My pleasure. Take care.